to read the first four verses. Second Peter chapter 1, the first four verses. Remember when you read these epistles, always remember there is an addressee. And we always want to know the people to whom the apostle is writing. And always remember what apostle it is that it's, that's doing the writing. This is the apostle Peter. He's the apostle of the circumcision. A man who was once directed not to go to the Gentiles nor into the cities of, of the Samaritans, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God never changed his commission. He never gave to that apostle Peter the gospel that he gave to the apostle Paul. And these are some things we have to remember because if you read commentaries on these particular epistles written by James and Jude and John and uh, the apostle Peter, you will find that they are always putting the church into these epistles as though they are neglecting 100% the addressee of each one of these books. And of course that's going to uh, work havoc in the minds of believers because you get awfully confused as to what your uh, uh, inheritance is and what your standing is in Christ because Israel's standing is not our standing. The standing of those who were saved at Pentecost, those who were Jews and had received the amnesty of the Apostle Peter, we find that uh, their standing was uh, vastly different than ours. They were called to another hope entirely than what we have been called to through the Apostle Paul's message. Ours is a heavenly calling, theirs was an earthly calling, so we don't expect that we can fit into everything that the Apostle Peter says to these particular people who are members of the Hebrew church. You and I are not members of the Hebrew church. We are members of the body of Christ, the church of God, which is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. First Peter, or Second Peter rather, chapter 1 and the first four verses. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, uh, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. When we closed our message last week, we're in the, first, in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter, and we read from the fifth verse to the end of the chapter, which was the 14th. And we didn't say very much, if anything at all, about verse 7. And I would like to take your attention back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, before we get into 2 Peter. There it says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. There are some things that the Apostle Peter told these members of the Hebrew church that's good for us too, because they are good for any believer that's saved regardless of the uh, dispensation in which they were saved. They are interdispensational teachings. It is ours to cast our care upon the Lord because he cares for us, and we have a lot of Pauline teaching that will support this. And I would like to mention this this morning because as an individual going through this particular life with all of its troubles and sorrows and uh, perplexities because we're going through uh, the end of the dispensation of the grace of God, I believe you'll all agree with me on this, and we find that there's terrible moral 
and spiritual uh, declension throughout the entire world. We find awful things are happening, and because of the confusion and not rightly dividing the word of truth, uh, Christendom has done an awful lot to confuse the minds of Christians so they don't know uh, what's uh, coming and uh, what their hope should be and so on. But may I say that it's ours as believers in Christ until we are caught up to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and taken into eternal glory. It is ours to cast our care upon him for he careth for us. We thank God for that. Much of the care that he has for us uh, is uh, cloaked, uh, shall we say, in, in a form of blessing. And then on the other hand, we find that it comes under the guise of uh, sorrow and loss of jobs, loss of money, loss of position, loss of life, and so on. But it's always a good thing to remember that the Lord cares for us. He cares for us. And he has chosen things to come into our experience that's going to be for our good and for our eternal welfare. Now that's for members of the Jewish or Hebrew church as well as members for the body of Christ. I hope all of you realize this morning that God cares for you. And in many, many ways he shows his wonderful care for us. And many times we take those demonstrations of his care, we misinterpret them, and then we think wrong. Uh, wrongly of God and of his character but that wouldn't be the right thing for us to do so casting all your care upon him for he careth for you I think would be a closing thought for that uh, first epistle of Peter and let us uh, keep that in mind now when you get into the first verse of the second epistle chapter 1 it says Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith now, it's easy for Christendom to immediately come to the conclusion that this is written to the church, which is the body of Christ. But we have to remember that as we read all three chapters, we will find that this is not true. The Apostle Peter did not write the first epistle uh, to members of the body of Christ. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. And there we find the addressee of this particular letter, and we don't want to confuse the issue because... You can go to the post office, pick up the wrong mail, and you'll be confused by the contents of that mail that's written to someone else. And for some reason, you think you are entitled to the contents of that letter. And that would be terribly confusing. And we don't want to confuse the issues that are brought here because we want to know to whom the Apostle Peter is writing. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now these strangers are Hebrews. Every one of them is a Jew. And we find that there were strangers for a definite reason. Now when you get into 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, you will read these words. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both, in both which I stir up your pure minds, by way of remembrance. And then you will see that the word remember or remembrance is a word that's often employed in these three chapters of Second Peter. So he's writing to the same group, don't you see? He says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. So don't think it's written in the same sense in which Paul writes his to the church, which is the body of Christ. These are still believers in the Hebrew church they are Christians according to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. And I think that any time you call the Hebrew church 
a Christian body, you have to explain the reason why it is Christian. In verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 4, we read these words. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, uh, of but on your part he is glorified. Uh, in verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian. That's the only place you will find it in relation to the Hebrew church. I don't like to call Hebrew believers and the Messianic message Christians unless we state the reason why. A lot of people have got the idea that they are Christians because they received the Christian message. The Christian message has been a blessing that's come to us through the Apostle Paul. It's Christ risen and glorified at the Father's right hand that gave to the Apostle Paul a message whereby Gentiles might become Christians and be followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not the reason why these Hebrew believers are Christians. They are followers of Christ, but they are followers of Christ as king, according to the kingdom message that the Apostle Peter had when he preached to them at the time of Pentecost. We are Christians by virtue of the fact that we are also followers of Christ, but not as, not, uh, as uh, Christ as king, but Christ as Savior and Lord as the head of the body, the church, which is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You see, they followed Christ for a different reason than what we followed Christ, because the message presented to them by the apostle Peter was a message concerning the death of Christ. And the death of Christ was laid at the door as far as personal guilt is concerned, at the door of these Hebrews. They had taken the Lord Jesus Christ and an answer to Pilate's question, what will you then would do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? He, they answered him, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Then the apostle Peter at Pentecost was given the power by the uh, Holy Spirit coming upon that group of Hebrew uh, believers. And they had the power to preach a message to these people, which was a message of amnesty an offer of pardon for offenses against the government. And we find that Gentiles are never accused of creating any offense against a government, but the Jews are. They are the ones who said, away with him, we will not have this man to reign over us. They became followers of Christ as king through Paul's kingdom, through Peter's kingdom message. And that's why they are called Christian in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. But when you get over to the Christian as it is applied to us today, we are Christians because we are followers of Christ and a Christian message has been given to us which we have accepted and we have become Christians by virtue of our following Christ, not as king, but as Lord and Savior and head of the body. Those are two grand purposes of two distinct gospels preached by two distinct, uh, distinctly different apostles, and that is one by Peter and the other by the apostle Paul. We have to remember these things because we know that these Jews now, they are dispersed. They are scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The same Jews are getting this message, which is the second epistle written to the same people by the same writer, the Apostle uh, Peter. 
We might say, why were those people scattered? Why were they living in Gentile territories? At least 15 or 16 names of Gentile territories are given to you in the first chapter of the book of uh, Acts. And we find that they came from all over these Gentile territories down to Jerusalem where they could uh, keep the Feast of Pentecost. Now, according to one of the Israel's historians, Abba Eben, he t said in a recent uh, televised broadcast that four out of five Jews at that particular time lived outside of, Ju outside of Palestine, which he preferred, of course, to call, uh, to call Judea. Uh, four out of five Jews lived outside of Palestine in Gentile territories. And then we have uh, some uh, of our theologians today trying to tell us why they were in these Gentile territories. One went as far as to say that because they went there for business opportunities. Can you imagine any member of Israel having to go outside of Palestine in order to become economically well off? God had blessed them and God had promised that every blessing known to uh, ever given to mankind would be theirs if they were obedient to the word of God. They could stay at home in Palestine and never leave Palestine and have all the wealth that any nation would ever want to have if they would stay there and live there in obedience to the word of God. But we find that they were under uh, uh, Roman rule at this particular time. And the heel of the Romans was awfully hard on the nation of Israel. We find that Palestine was being governed and controlled, and especially Jerusalem, it was being governed by the Roman power. I want to take you back to Daniel chapter 2, please, in order to revive a few thoughts in your mind about the powers, the Gentile powers, that were eventually to take over and did take over in Daniel's day. In Daniel chapter 2, we find that there is a king, and he is uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a dream. But he, uh, the, the dream itself fled from his memory, and all of the wise men and the soothsayers of that country were gathered together, and they were told that they re their responsibility was to recall the dream and to give the interpretation of it. The folly of such a demand was uh, shown to Nebuchadnezzar, but he insisted on it. But there happened to be one very wise man, and that was Daniel. And Daniel and his friends had been given special wisdom from God. And so Daniel uh, asked God for the help that was needed because Daniel did not have any power residing in himself to do this tremendous feat. And we find that God gave him the help, gave him a vision again of that vision which was given by way of a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And then we find that he was given the interpretation of it. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, with a, uh, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image 
became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Before we go into the interpretation of this, may I remind you that God raised up a nation from Abraham, and we find that the purpose of that nation was that that nation might rule for God in this world and be a witness to the Gentile nations. God intended that there should be the setting up of a theocracy, God ruling among men through men that were divinely chosen by God. And I think the essence of that theocracy was in the kingships. And we find that Saul was the first king, but he was not of God's choice. He was, uh, he was of man's choice, and he was a failure. But then David was a man of God's choice, and God put David upon the throne, and so on. And as you go through, you find that that kingdom was suspended, and at the year about 660 BC, uh, 606 BC, we find the first world power, Gentile world power, coming into play. God allowed the kingdom of Babylon to go into Jerusalem and to destroy the city and go into Palestine and take Jew after Jew and bring them into Palestine, into Babylon. That was the action of the first world empire. Now that world empire is seen here as a head of gold. And then we find that there are the arms and the breast of silver. That means a power which is diminishing in glory because silver is less valuable than gold and we find that that power is the power of the Medes and the Persians and then we find belly and thighs of brass and that power is Greece and then finally we get down to the fourth power two legs and that's made of iron and that is the Roman power so let's look with that in mind let's remember this let's read this 36 this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the, king of, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. And, art, and uh, thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, that's the silver, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. I want you to notice now the fourth one is Rome, and I want you to see why the people of Israel felt it necessary, four out of five, to leave Palestine and to leave Jerusalem and go into these Gentile territories. So don't try to put the church, the body of Christ, in First Peter or in Second Peter. It says in verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. You see its characteristics? It breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And the people of Israel were bruised and broken to a thousand pieces under the heel of the Roman emperors. We find that Rome had a religion too, you see. And we find that they expected that their emperors would be the god to be worshipped. And we find, we told you what name was given to those who worshipped the emperor. But then we find that there are those who would not uh, worship the emperor. And they were looking forward to another king and the establishment of another kingdom. That happened to be the kingdom promised by the prophets. And the Messiah was to be that particular king. 
We find that when the apostle Peter came along and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, gave the people of Hebrew, the Hebrew people an opportunity to accept an amnesty and to receive pardon for their transgression against the government of God. We find then those who followed Christ by being baptized and repented and baptized, we find that they were looked at as Christianos. I gave you that word a few weeks ago, and that's what the Romans called those who followed Christ and preferred Christ against the emperor to be their king. And of course, that was not liked. That was not appreciated by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire made it very difficult for these Christianos so that so many of them had left beside others, Hebrews, who looked forward to the king and to the kingdom, but who had not accepted the Messiah as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so multitudes of Jews had left Palestine to live in other countries which they adopted to be their countries, including the adoption of their languages and so on. And there they were. They were Christianos. They were followers of Christ, rather than followers of the emperor. But many of those Jews were not Christianos. But since they had it bred into them that God was going to someday send his son or send the Messiah, which would be the seed of the woman, and raise up the kingdom of God, which had been postponed from the time of the kings in the Old Testament scripture, we find that these people uh, believed that God had a king and a kingdom for them, and because they would not worship the emperor, they also, although they did not believe Peter's message at Pentecost, they went out into these Gentile territories as well, because simply because they believed that God had a king and a kingdom, although they did not believe that the Christ that they had crucified was that king. So we find hundreds of thousands of Jews, four out of five of all of the Jewish population, there they are in these Gentile territories. Only a handful that we might call the remnant of Israel believe that Jesus, the one that they had crucified, had been raised from the dead and was established by Peter to be that promised king. And they were told that if all of the Jews repented and were baptized, including all the leaders of Israel, then God would send his king. That promise is in the third chapter of the book of Acts, and you ought to read it with that in mind. All right, now we find that these people were not there for economic reasons. They were there for two other reasons. One was a religious reason, and the other one was a political one. And all those Jews out there, some belonged to the remnant because they had accepted the Christ of Peter's gospel of the kingdom. The rest of them looked forward to a Christ. They looked forward to a messianic king, but they would not accept Jesus as that particular king. So they were the unbelievers, and they made it hard for that poor little old remnant that had accepted Peter's message. All right then, why are they out there? For two reasons. One is for religious reasons. Regardless of what Jew it was, we find that the unbelieving Jews looked forward to a king and a kingdom that was not emperor of Rome or the Roman Empire. On the other hand, we find their religious reasons were that they believed that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be that king and that he would be the son of God. And for that reason, they could not bow the knee to the emperor and accept him as their God. And therefore, for religious and political reasons, 
they were out in those uh, foreign countries uh, where the Gentiles were located. Now that's why it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those were the larger sectors, and they were divided into various Gentile sectors, but that's where they were, and they were out of their homeland. And I believe that this is necessary for us to know. So we want to ask the question, was it for economic reasons, as some of our men in the theological world tell us it was? Absolutely not. It was for religious and for political reasons. They could not bow to the emperor as God or to the emperor and his uh, representative uh, kingdom as being that of their choosing. A few of them were convinced by Peter's message, as I said a while ago, of the resurrection of one called Jesus to be that particular king. And what a wonderful thing that was. Now the rank and file of uh, rejected, of the people of the Hebrews, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did not become the Christ followers that are referred to in 1 Peter 4.16. They did not become Christianos. So all of the Jews in these territories, many of them needed the gospel of the grace of God. They needed, first of all, the gospel of the kingdom, which they had rejected. Now there's only one thing left for them, and that's why the apostle Peter is very careful to speak very kindly about Silvanus, who was an apostle of the New Testament, and why he mentions Paul in the third chapter of the second epistle of Peter, in order to get them prepared for the fact that soon after the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD, another 10 or 12 years or so, they would have to depend entirely upon Paul's message because the message of the gospel of kingdom would come to an abrupt end when God turned his back upon the nation of Israel. All of these things are very important and they're wonderful to see. Now the days of these particular generations of the Jews living in these foreign Gentile territories are called, uh, are, are called uh, the times of the Gentiles in the scriptures. And we find that they were the days of Roman rule as prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. Now that prophecy was given in the form of a vision like I said the head of it was of gold, thou art this head, that's Babylon. And then the breast and the arms were of silver, that's Media Persia. And the belly and thighs of it was of brass, and that represents the world kingdom of Greece. And that was followed by the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. And that's all traditional Christendom will give you, but there is a fifth that is hidden from view, and a lot of people don't realize it's there. I don't have time to talk about it. I'm going to talk about this particular image in the future sometime when I get finished with these particular epistles. But there is the feet of iron and clay, and that represents the Mohammedan power, which is even in power today in a sense because we find Palestine is divided between the Arabs and the people of Israel and the Mohammedan power came in at 636 B, uh, AD and is still in power and they really uh, uh, really fulfilled that scripture which we have in the 21st chapter of the book of Luke where the Lord Jesus Christ looks into the future and he says that the city of Jerusalem will be under foot of the Gentiles 
for a while and underfoot which suggests the two feet of, of clay and iron. And so there is actually a fifth world power that is not reckoned with in the thoughts of um, uh, Christendom today. The power of Rome came to an end at 635 and 636. We find the power of Mohammedanism coming in and the city is divided as well as the land is well divided between those two. And there's got to be a lot of trouble, of course, in the Middle East uh, before everything can be turned over to the Jews. God will have to work hard and fast when the time comes and Sometimes we are trying to do our best to help him by votes and so on, but you can't help him at all. You're just going to do what he wants done. So it's wonderful to see this. God has his eye on his people. And if you belong to his people, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you can put it down for a fact that God is interested in you in a sense in which you could never be interested in yourself and for your own good. And that's the reason why we have the scripture in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. God has one objective before him uh, as far as your life and my life is concerned. And that is conformity in a very practical sense today to the image of his dear, uh, dear son. And in a real sense, a conformity to that image at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing you want to make sure of, and that is that you know Christ is your Savior. We have a lot of Gospels being preached today, but there is one Gospel that saves, and that's the one that directs your attention to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's made plain to you in Romans chapter 3, where we, are, uh, where we read about through faith in his blood. One must put his faith and confidence in what Christ has done on the cross. And when that is accomplished, then we pass from death unto life. Christ becomes our Savior, and then he should become our Lord in a very practical way. Now, Rome is reported to have had control of Jerusalem for some 666 years altogether, from 331 B.C. to 636 B.C. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40, as we read, we find that which describes that terrible power that led many a Hebrew, four out of five, to get out of Jerusalem and out of Palestine. And you must always remember that these are enemies of the people of Israel insofar as they have power over the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is the place of political power for Israel, but it's also the center of their religious power. And we find that if you take Jerusalem away from the people of Israel, they have neither politics nor, nor religion. And it's impossible. That's why at the destruction in 70 AD of Jerusalem, we find that they were left without anything. Today, we find in some of their celebrations where there should be the killing of a lamb, there is the swinging of a, of a chicken over their head, and that's the only thing that they've got that they can say or talk about the shedding of blood, and they don't know how it happens that when they uh, celebrate the Passover, the only thing they've got is a chicken and they don't have a lamb. Now this is true in the history of that nation. Now to go on, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. 
Now some people think that they, this is written to us because we have obtained like precious faith with the Jews. We have not obtained like precious faith with the message of Peter to the people of Israel at Pentecost. The object of our faith is the person of Christ in either case. But now we find that the purpose for placing our faith in that object of the Lord Jesus for you and for me is that we might become immediately citizens of heaven, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that we might no longer be children as the people of Israel were children of God, but that we might be sons of God, recognized by God as being mature sons and capable of handling our inheritance. So it says like precious faith. We find that in this particular word, we must remember that there are some commonplace things which become very precious to people when they are what I would call on the run. And I would like to think that in the epistles of Peter you have seven things that are precious and that Peter mentions. But when you go and take the word precious out of your concordance, you will find that only once does Paul use it and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verse 12, where he talks about precious stones. That's the only time he uses the word precious. Why? Because you and I are not on the run. But the people of Israel were on the run. They were not in Palestine. Four, four out of five were out in these Gentile territories. They were fleeing, don't you see? And we find that there are some things that are more commonplace in this life that become precious when we get to be on the run. Now let me give you that, uh, let me try to illustrate that. When you go to Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, I won't take time to look at it, our time is going. But when you get to Titus 1 and 4, you read about precious faith. The Apostle Paul is using that uh, in connection with faith. He says uh, precious faith. And that is a wonderful thing. Precious faith we read in Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse 4. And uh, we find that it's, uh, uh, the faith there is, uh, let me see, Paul speaks of the faith as, pardon me, he speaks of the faith as being common. Let's get that correct now. He speaks of the faith as being common in Titus chapter 1 verse 4. It's only in, first, in uh, Peter's epistle that we read of faith being precious faith. Get that now. Paul doesn't refer to it as being precious. It's common. You and I have one faith. That is faith in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is not what denomination you belong to. A lot of people will say, well, what faith are you? And then you will say Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, whatever it is. That's not the way God uses the word faith. If we have a like common faith, it means that one faith in the personal work of Christ that saves and saves for eternity. And that is what makes us common brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ and members of the body of Christ. All right, now Peter uses the word precious seven times. The Apostle Paul once, and that's in 1 Corinthians 3.12. I want you to think of the days of the prophets. You know, they went through some awful times. If you want to read about it, you can read it in 1 Samuel. But in chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Samuel, you read this statement. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. Why was it precious? Because there was no vision, it says. There was no open vision. That means it was precious by virtue of the fact that God was silent to the people of Israel. When God is silent to the people of Israel, it's because he is judging them. 
It is because they are doing something contrary to his word. He cannot make new revelations to them. Now God is silent to us for another reason entirely. God gave to the Apostle Paul the ability and the power and the divine inspiration to finish the word of God in regards to the church, the body of Christ. We find the word of God ought to be precious to us because there has been no open vision. God has not spoken to us since the Apostle Paul closed the book as far as church revelation is concerned. Those books that follow deal with Hebrews. They deal with the nation of Israel, not with the body of Christ. But as far as we are concerned, God's revelation closed when the Apostle Paul was given to finish the revelation concerning the church, the body of Christ. We are living in a day of a silent heaven. Don't tell me you heard God speak to you. You didn't. Unless you can quote the scripture, God only speaks today from his word. People will continue to have dreams because they are taught to believe that whatever Israel's experiences were, you can expect them too. And therefore, people with a powerful imagination can imagine they hear strange voices and then blame that on God's voice. And that's not true at all. You have no background for support for anything that you believe unless you can get it from the word rightly divided. And remember when I say rightly divided, I mean you don't go back to Israel's history or Israel's blessings. You go back to those that God has given to the church, the body of Christ. All right, then it says, Simon Peter, servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, isn't that a wonderful expression? We can look at it and get a blessing out of it ourselves. The Bible says somewhere in the Old Testament scripture, he is righteous in all his ways. You can never claim that God has done a single solitary thing. If he has allowed you to lose your job, if he has allowed you to lose your place among men, if he has humbled you, and may I say that the scriptures more uh, bring out the fact that we are to humble ourselves rather than he humbles us, but if in some connection, in some phase of our life, you believe that God has taken something from you, you have to remember this. If he has taken it, he is righteous in what he has done. He took it because he wants it. He wants it for himself. And he will give sufficient grace for us to suffer that particular loss. He is righteous in all of his ways. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 raises a question. It says there... Is there unrighteousness with God? And what's Paul's answer? God forbid, or far be the thought. There is no unrighteousness with God. If you think in some areas there is unrighteousness with God, you better change your thinking because you're not in tune with God's revelation. And we might just as well get in tune with that revelation because then we'll be happy with whatever God is pleased to deal out to us. In verse 2, I think I've got a moment or two yet. In verse 2 it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I guess with verse 2 we'll have to close. I would like to say this about verse 2. Before there can be multiplication of grace and peace, I want you to notice that we have terms used in mathematics in this chapter because a few verses later on we'll have addition. 
and now we're going to have multiplication. It's the, and we come to the conclusion that before God can uh, multiply to us grace and peace, there must first be a knowledge of God and of Christ. God will not multiply that which you can never get without being saved by the grace of God. He says it will be multiplied through a knowledge of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we have to know is Christ as our Savior. We know God through the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But by him, he said. And uh, we must remember, too, that the carnal mind or the natural mind, either one, the carnal mind we usually put with a Christian who's out of fellowship with God, and the natural mind, which is the unrecreated uh, man, the one who is not saved by the grace of God, the carnal mind or the natural mind is at enmity with God. And no amount of genius or intelligence can transfer the spiritual blessing or spiritual knowledge or grace and peace. That which is offered in the word of God, it cannot be transferred to the natural man. I want to close with one scripture in First uh, Corinthians, please, in chapter 2 and verse 14. A lot of people think that they have the power to soak in spiritual realities if their minds were just exposed to it, why they would be agreeable to whatever they listened to. And I say you can't understand a spiritual implication of Scripture without the teaching of the Holy Spirit. He must illuminate our minds before we can grasp the truth that is conveyed through the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man, that's the unsaved man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Isn't that something? He cannot receive them until, of course, the person is willing to set aside all of his preconceived notions and opinions and philosophies and say, yes, Lord, speak to me. I need this word. The Holy Spirit will illuminate the mind. But as long as you remain a natural man, it says here, Receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, or can only be understood after a spiritual manner. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, and only the believer has the mind of Christ. It is impossible for you to transfer one spiritual nugget from the Word of God into that mind that's at enmity with God, no matter how much you like religious things, no matter how much you like to go to church. If you are not saved, you cannot find the transference of a single spiritual truth to your mind by sheer power or personal power or intellect or genius. If you wonder how you can be saved and be a an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus and be in his family for all eternity not as a child but as a son receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior see him as the one who died for your sins and was buried and was raised again and put your faith and trust in him he is the only proper object of faith not the preacher, not the consistory, not a church but the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else may the Lord bless his words to our hearts this morning for his name's sake.
apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this morning, I think it was, we talked about multiplication, because in verse 2 it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, or Jesus our Lord. And in verses 3 and 4, while subtraction is not mentioned there, we're going to see how that this word is suggested in these two verses. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now divine power must come through the living word. It's impossible to appreciate or to enjoy or to experience divine power in our lives unless we've been born again. And of course we can only be born again through the word and uh, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And that's true of us as it is of any person that's born again in the world in any dispensation. And when we are born again then we notice that there is divine power at our uh, request or at our disposal we might say and that divine power is given to us in order that we might have anything and everything that pertains to this present life as a believer in Christ and to the accomplishment of godliness in that life. We must remember that God is a holy God and many times he exhorted the people of Israel to be holy because he was holy. And of course if those earthly people with an earthly inheritance and an earthly outlook were to be holy, why should we think that God expects anything less from us? He expects that, and he expects it to be easier for us to attain to holiness than it would be for them because of the particular future that we have as opposed to the future that they had. We find that his, uh, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, and having been partakers of the divine nature or become partakers of that divine nature, we find that he is able then to supply us with all things that pertain to this life and godliness so that we don't have to depend upon anything outside of ourselves. We have everything within us by virtue of our possession of a divine nature and of the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. It also escapes us, it also enables us, rather, to escape the pollutions that are in this world through lust. You notice that in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now we do know that there are many lustful pleasures and desires and all of these have to be subdued. In fact, they have to be subtracted from our life. When the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that all of those who are in Christ are new creations, old things pass away, behold, all things become new, we find that as soon as we are saved by the grace of God, this uh, subtraction comes into our lives. There are some things that are taken from us. 
And we thank God that those things that God subtracts from our lives are those things that would not enhance our testimony as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can look back at my life and see that there were those things that I practiced and I enjoyed practicing uh, back in the days before I was saved. And those things are no longer in my life. Some things stopped immediately. Some things took a few years to slacken down and come to an end. But I thank God that a great change takes place. And over the years, you can find that there's been a bit of subtraction in your life and in my life. And uh, these are the things that God, by his divine power, has a way of taking from us because he puts something much better before us. And that's the best way to deal with that. Sometimes we have to be dealt with like little children because if you want to take something out of the hand of a little child, a knife or something, you want to be ready first to offer it something else, something that might appeal to its appetite. And then with a grasp for that thing that it just loves to eat or something like that, we can take the knife out of the child's hands without any danger. We find that God has many goodies that he presents to us in his word, and these he offers from time to time as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And many times these offers of these goodies are just in order to take from us those things that are harmful. Now, they'll never keep you from getting into heaven. We thank God for it. You don't have to have a thing subtracted from your life outside of your sins, which are forgiven the very moment you accept Christ as your Savior. But the things that are subtracted from your life are not in order that you might be saved, but in order that you might have a testimony uh, that might affect other people as a saved person. And so these things are very, very important. And we might ask ourselves tonight the question, uh, how many things have been subtracted from your life since you profess to be saved? What are those things? It might be good to think of the past somehow, looking back over your past before you were saved. You, had, uh, you found an attraction of this thing and that thing, and you like to pass your time away with this or that. And you've had habits that were destructive in a great sense, physically and so on. And I have also, but these things have come to an end. And uh, it's a good thing to see how many things there are in your life that has, has made a change or have been taken from you in order that your life might be more attractive as a believer in the Lord Jesus. So let's look at those two verses again. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now there's an awful lot of corruption in the world. You and I were partakers of it. We added to its corruption at one time, and we should never be thought of as people adding to the corruption that's in this world. We know there's a lot of lust in the old flesh, the old man. But we are to reckon that old man to be dead indeed unto sin, according to Romans chapter 6. And that reckon is a, uh, is a faith word, because it's only by faith you can come to the conclusion that you have died with Christ, and therefore your life should be lived on a higher level. There's nothing about you, apparently, that shows any death with Christ. It's a truth. It's a spiritual truth. And you simply be believe it because God has stated it. And therefore God says, reckon it. And you are to reckon it to be a fact that you have died with Christ. The old man died with Christ on the cross of Calvary. 
And the old man is not supposed to dictate to us anymore. The Holy Spirit of God, through the operation of the divine nature, will now dictate to us as to what our habits should be, what we, how should we, we should pass our time, and, uh, and other things that would go to make up human life on this earth. Now this word lust is simply unlawful desire. And there are many desires that we have associated with our fleshly nature that are unlawful as far as the spiritual life are, is concerned. And we find that the spiritual life is not the same as the old Adamic fleshly life because these unlawful uh, things were not unlawful then. They were desires and they were closely associated with the nature that produced these desires. But now we have two natures, the two natures, the one is set over and against the other, and the one is supposed to cancel out the desires of the fleshly nature so that the desires of the uh, spiritual nature, the nature of God, might be in the ascendancy. So those are good thoughts for us to think tonight. In verse 5 it says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add. And now we come to the word addition. So we've had multiplication, we've had uh, subtraction, and now we have addition. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love. Now, this mathematical term is just as important as the other two. They All three of them have their place in the Christian experience. You will notice that there are seven virtues that are mentioned here, but these seven virtues are not virtues of the Christian, of the, Christian, of the believer in Christ or of the divine nature, unless they issue from faith. Uh, we, uh, we have to notice that these Christian virtues may appear to be spiritual, or rather fleshly uh, virtues of the same type. Because if you look over these particular virtues, there are a lot of people today who give expression to these very things without being saved. And therefore, a lot of people come to the conclusion that they must be Christians if they are capable of producing these things. Many fleshly virtues appear to be spiritual in nature to the merely religious person. And that's what fools a lot of people. A lot of people are lost today because they say, well, I do this and I do that. I think along this line and I think along that line and I love and so on. But if it's not an issue of faith, then you have nothing after all. And that's why these virtues may be simply the evidences of our civilized culture. Because in civilization, we expect to be gentlemen and gentlewomen. And uh, a lady, if she wants to be a lady, is not going to be coarse. Uh, she's going to be refined, and some of the refineries might be some of these virtues that are expressed in the everyday life of an unconverted per person who, are simply, who happens to simply give evidence to the civilized culture of today. And therefore, we have a lot of fine people going to hell today who have never known Christ as Savior, they're capable of producing some of these things, but if they are not built on faith, and I want to emphasize that, if they are not built on faith, they cannot be construed as being spiritual. We find then it's nothing else but a fleshly attempt to live like a believer or to encourage these particular civilized tendencies and cultures and habits that we have all around us today in the United States of America without ever having been born again. 
A lot of people think they are on the way to heaven because they're not so bad after all. And they can find an awful lot of Christians around them who seem to be fundamental. And their lives are better than these Christian fundamentalists. And that's why it's very difficult for us to pass a final word on the destiny of any man, woman, or child other than yourself. Simply because you don't know. God knows and we thank God that he's the one that's going to stand in the final end. And he will decide as to who comes into eternal glory and who does not. Every person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is also a partaker of the divine nature. And having these two plus factors on one side, immediately upon death that person enters into the presence of Christ and they are in eternal glory, waiting for the time of the change in their body when mortality shall give place to immortality. And uh, so we cannot say a final word about anyone other than ourselves, and sometimes we find ourselves mistaken as hundreds of thousands of people in the world today think of themselves as being Christians and on the way to heaven when they are not at all. We cannot bypass faith. There is the knowledge of Christ and of God that's necessary. We mentioned that this morning. And now in verse 5, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And a person who is not saved is a person who does not have faith in the personal work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of good people who are church members today who have no faith in the personal work of Christ. They have faith in a lot of things. They may believe a lot of facts about the Bible, but they have never latched hold or placed their trust, as it were, in what Christ has done for them, putting no trust whatever in anything that they can do because uh, salvation is by faith, uh, by grace, and through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then you notice that there are seven of these virtues, and seven is the number of perfection, and God is able to bring about these marvelous virtues in our own lives, if the unconverted people are able to act in some measure like uh, a believer who is blessed with these seven virtues that are built upon faith, and you can see that every believer should be capable with the power of God that's at our disposal to have these seven things added to our faith. So we should be very careful and look over these things and be very careful that they are really additions because those additions will overcome the subtractions as I said before, God never takes away from us without giving us something more than what we've ever given up. And it's not a matter of giving up, because the only things that he takes from us are the distasteful things. And we don't want distasteful things to cling to us, and then we go on before people and say that we're born again. Now in verse 9 it says, But he that lacketh these things, or verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that once we come to a knowledge of Christ, there must be some fruit in our lives. That's one reason why this, the Scripture says, "By their fruit ye shall know them." In the believer, these particular virtues are the fruits of knowing Christ. Now that's a wonderful thing. These virtues that we have mentioned, these seven things are those things that follow in the wake of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are looked at as fruits in the life of the believer. And that comes out of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then in verse 9 it tells you that he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So for a believer to lack these things which even an unbeliever can show and manifest in his life as part of civilized uh, culture, we find that if a believer lacks these things which are so often present in a person of culture would be proof of impaired spiritual vision and that is from verse 9 he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off so there is an impairment of spiritual vision and we thank God that God is able to give everyone light and he's able to open the eyes it's like the blind man of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ he says one thing I can say is once I was blind but now I can see and that's what every born-again person ought to be able to say. He has spiritual vision. He sees, sees things in the scripture in a different light entirely. His historical uh, realities or facts are more than historical facts. They are spiritual uh, re realities that are uh, given to us with the intent of causing us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we might say that not only... Uh, is there a proof of impaired spiritual vision in those who lack these thing, these seven particular virtues but we find that there is also a state of forgetfulness you know and that's what a lot of us people who grow a little older that's what we find is one of the hardships of growing older and that is that we forget things that we wish that we could remember at certain times and here there is a forgetfulness of one's cleansing, of one's being purged by the blood of Christ. Now can you imagine a person would ever forget that he was washed in the blood of Christ? And yet that is exactly what it says here. Because those who lack these things, particular virtues, we find that they are like people who have forgotten that they have been purged from their old sins. What an awful thing to forget. How can we forget that the scripture tells us in first in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins and then in first John chapter 1 and verse 7 in the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sins I hope these words stay with you right to the end of your life you know sometimes we feel sorry for people who are getting older they not only forget but their mind seems to be failing them and during that particular time, their memories are not only sluggish, but we find that they can't think of those scriptures, and they don't get the same joy out of the Word of God that they did when their minds were well and strong and healthy. You feel sorry for those people, but God knows all about it, and He'll remove them when it's His time to take them home, and they'll be with Him in the glory. And I remember there's one thing that Maudie asked, prayed for, or requested some few years ago even, before she really got to what you might be called call an old person, and that is that she might always have a good mind, a mind sufficient to recall the Word of God, because that would be the only support we have in the moment of our passing out of this life. And that's what we would all like to have, but we're not all going to get it. We don't all get what we ask for, do we? But God will give grace regardless, and we can be sure of that. <clears throat> In verse uh, 9, uh, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. 
For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, we want to be doing these things. We want people to be sure as to what we stand for. We want them to know us as people that stand on the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I think that's a very important scripture where it says to make diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now Israel's calling was to an earthly inheritance. And they are not to forget that. Remember this book is written to Hebrew believers in the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are looking forward to the king to reign on the, on the throne of David as promised in Acts chapter 3 and which could still come to pass at the time of this writing. And that's why the apostle Peter keeps them remembering the fact of the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And it simply takes the return of the king to bring in the kingdom. But what has to take place in order to return the king? There's got to be repentance and baptism on the part of the people of Israel. They have to own their part in the death of Christ on the cross and find cleansing or purgation or washing uh, from that by their confession of it, their being baptized, and their relationship then to Christ as Savior King. And so it says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling. Now their calling is an earthly calling. They're looking for a king, and that king is the son of David. This particular remnant happens to be that particular part of the people of Israel who have fled into Gentile territories. And he is telling them that they are to make their calling and election sure. We thank God that they are also called elect. They bear the same name, uh, the same title, we might say, as the Lord Jesus Christ had in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he is called elect precious. I think it's verse 6. <clears throat> we might take a look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, verse 6 it says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect, precious. That's not a verb, it's a noun. And uh, it says, uh, And he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. All right. In verse 10, Wherefore then, uh, the rather brethren, give diligence, verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 1, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now our calling and our election is vastly different than Israel's. I know we have to go over and over and over this because it's the only way we can keep it in mind and build on that marvelous truth. Your calling is to a heavenly calling. It is not to an earthly calling. It has nothing to do with the reign of Christ on this earth. Ours has to do with eternal glory and that's why we are the only people on the face of the earth who have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are the only people of whom it can be said in the language of the book of Philippians that we, our citizenship or our uh, politics is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior. That's what the word there, citizenship, means. It comes from a Greek word from which we get the word politics. Sometimes we are just a little too much engrossed with the politics of this life and we become... Uh, people who are always against the government and so on, and we become protesters. God doesn't want us to become protesters. He wants us to, us to pray for those who are in authority. We didn't put them in authority. God put them into authority, and therefore we are to pray for them. If, if your man didn't come in or if you didn't vote for a man, that's perfectly all right. 
We thank God that God will overrule and he has a way of uh, doing things after his own fashion and to his own honor and glory. And there's not a man or a bunch of votes that can be taken in the United States of America that's going to change the picture of things as far as God's purposes for the future are concerned. In verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now he is not talking about the kingdom of his dear son. We read in the word concerning the present day believer, the member of the body of Christ, that he has been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. This particular kingdom is the kingdom that's promised to the nation of Israel. And of his kingdom, the Bible says, there shall be no end. All you have to do is read 2 Samuel chapter 7 for God's promise to David as far as the kingdom was concerned, that it would be brought in eventually through his greater son. And uh, we find that that kingdom would be forever. It would be an everlasting kingdom. And that's what this is too. Uh, this everlasting kingdom is the kingdom that begins in that kingdom, which is called the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the, in the gospel of Matthew, it is called the kingdom of heaven. And whenever you think of the term the kingdom of heaven, always think of it in terms of the millennium in the future. It has nothing to do with you and me as uh, members or partakers of the kingdom of his dear son. There are various kingdoms in the Bible, and you don't just group them all together and say they all mean the same thing. That's not true at all. And so we find that there will be an abundant entrance for these particular people into the everlasting kingdom. So if the king were to return in their time during the writing of this particular epistle, uh, which was written about maybe between 50 and 60 A.D., if he were to come in 60 A.D. or somewhere 60 to 66, they would find that they would have an abundant entrance into the kingdom, and we find that as far as God's judgment of the nation was concerned, as prophesied in the scripture, would not come to pass because that was all uh, that would all be determined upon Israel's acceptance or rejection of the amnesty offered by the Apostle Peter. That amnesty was offered throughout the whole book of Acts. Always remember that. Although God began to see and God understood, he knows things from the beginning, and he could see where the people of Israel were uh, turning their back upon the message of the amnesty. They were determined not to accept the resurrected Jesus as the uh, Messiah, the seed of the woman, the promised king, and therefore he raised up the apostle Paul by saving him in chapter 9 and commissioning him, and then giving him to go out to the Gentiles, and as he went to the Gentiles, he first went to the Jews, wherever were po was possible, wherever there was a synagogue, the gospel that was given to the, uh, the apostle Paul, which he called my gospel, which is the gospel according to the mystery, we find that he preached that to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, going to the Jew first always with a message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which was absolutely essential for the Jewish people to receive before they could either enter into the kingdom blessing or enter into the blessing of God's grace as given to the Apostle Paul and especially brought out more fully after the book of Acts experience. So it says in verse 11, For so an, abundant, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly 
into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I would look at these as watermarks on the pages of divine scripture and these particular uh, epistles written by the circumcision apostles. And these are proofs that the recipients of these particular epistles were not members of the body of Christ or citizens of heaven. And uh, they, uh, the recipients are simply those who have been blessed with this uh, uh, wonderful uh, hope of being on this earth with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning uh, by his return to them. In verse 12 it says, Wherefore for I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Now Peter's writings, therefore, is a reminder, and we find the word remembrance several times in this uh, second epistle, because he was constantly reminding them of what their inheritance was, what their particular hope was. They were not to forget or to be confused by the fact that the Apostle Paul was present in those days, preaching the gospel of grace, they were always to remember that while they were alive and before God had the opportunity of turning his back upon them as a nation in Acts chapter 28, there was always the possibility for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the event that the nation of Israel repented of their sin of crucifying the Lord of life and glory, and by that repentance they showed it visibly or physically by the waters of baptism. So it says here, we find it very clear that Peter's writings, therefore, is a reminder of the truth of the kingdom, which should be before their minds as long as it was being offered. And throughout the whole book of Acts, we find that Peter and the apostles are offering this particular kingdom blessing to the people of Israel. They did not go to the Gentiles. Cornelius was the only Gentile family that they approached on as far as this kingdom message was concerned, only to give the people of Israel a little idea of what would happen as far as blessing to the Gentiles was concerned if they as a nation had first accepted Christ as the risen uh, Messiah. Now here we find that these people are to told about present truth. You know that, notice that in verse 12. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. This truth concerning the kingdom and keeping it before the Jewish people was present truth for that particular people, for the remnant. Remember that. He is not talking about present truth for us, which would be different entirely and could only come to us through the Apostle Paul. This is a good example of updating truth. I only mention that because of the misleading truth about, among traditionalists today, and in that misleading truth there has been little or no updating of truth since the 18th and the 19th century, uh, the 19th and the 20th century. There has been no updating of the truth. We are still going by what Mr. Schofield said 50, 75, 80, 90 years ago. And we have, and most of traditionalists have stopped right then and there, as though Mr. Schofield had it all, but he didn't have it all. His eyes were just being open to the fact that dispensational truth was the key to the understanding of the scriptures. But as you read many of his footnotes, you will see that you thoroughly disagree with it because there has been no updating of the truth. And I believe that if Mr. Schofield had lived to today, he would have updated the truth 
he would have scrapped the Schofield Bible and put out another edition entirely showing the truth to be updated as it is now known and as it has been perceived. Now the reason why it takes that long for us to get the truth updated is because the church was in the dark from the early first centuries of the church right on through the 15th century. In the 15th century we find that uh, Martin Luther was the first to recognize the error of Roman Catholicism and they were charging all kinds of penances for the forgiveness of sins. And so he was stirred up by the truth of what you get in the book of Romans, justification by faith. He nails up 95 theses on the doors of the Wittenberg Church, and that is his personal and individual and soul stand against the evils of Roman Catholicism. Now those evils are still there in spite of what you may find in ecumenicism, ecumenism today where we find that both Protestants and Gentiles, can, uh, Protestants and Catholics rather, can get together and enjoy a little PTL. But that doesn't mean anything, because Roman Catholicism is the same as it always has been. They will always be charging penances. You'll always have to pay for redemption that Rome can give, because it knows not the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ as the only and final payment for the price of forgiveness. And only God can save by accepting Christ as personal Savior. And so we find that there was this change. And that came in through Martin Luther. But then a couple of centuries passed by before the eyes of the Protestants became a, a little wider open to see just a bit more truth. And so we have Macintosh and we have a few writers from the early Plymouth Brethren and we find that they were blessed with a measure of truth that they did not pursue because they have said things that we say today as we see the word of God uh, rightly divided. And they, we find that their followers have not accepted it and that is not in their teaching today. I can read to you many things that CHN said and that other people have said that shows you that there was a time in the 19th century when their eyes were opened to see wondrous things. And it was at that time we had Mr. Schofield. But those people stopped and some didn't go uh, any farther at all. And it's only one here and one there that pursued and updated the truth so that we today have present truth. But I want to tell you that since this particular epistle is written to Hebrew believers, remember that present truth for them concerned the kingdom they were not to forget that they were still living in those apostolic days, those days of the book of Acts, when God was still offering them the opportunity for the return of the king if they would repent and be baptized. That was their present truth and what Peter is saying, I'll spend all of my time that's at my disposal to continue to remind you that that is the thing that you are to, looking, uh, to look for. Don't uh, lose your grasp on the fact that God today, right now, is offering you the opportunity for the return of the king and the setting up of the kingdom. Again, let's read that verse 12, and with this we'll close. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Verse 13 gives you another remembrance. You see that? Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. And in verse 15, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. 
He didn't know exactly when he was going to die, but he did know according to the words of our Lord Jesus, and we'll take that up next Sunday, the Lord willing, that he was to die a martyr's death. He knew that. And yet what would be being offered at the time that he would die a martyr's death, he did not know. But as long as the message was being offered, he was there to bring it to their remembrance. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's why we preachers today have to keep on bringing things to your remembrance. We may say things over and over again. You may get tired of some expressions and some things may sound as they are becoming cliches and we hate cliches. But sometimes we have to say them so many times that they'll finally make its imprint in your mind and in your heart and you'll be starting to talk at yourself and use the same language and that's what we hope. May the Lord bless his word to each one of us tonight for his name's sake.